Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then I would encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a cloudy autumn afternoon here in the capital is Sonny Panmoir. Sonny is the Managing Director at Raise Capital Group, a group of visionary funding professionals who assist clients by providing funding solutions to complex lending requirements. Sonny is also the Managing Director of Hospitality Business at the Mall Bank Inn, a country pub located in Malvern. Um, Sonny, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me today, Scott. Thank you. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves alongside me. Um, normally, at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate mm-hmm. we take the subject matter from that angle because it has proven, hasn't it, this pandemic to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself working within both finance and also hospitality. To what extent has it affected things for you and your businesses? Quite a lot, I can imagine. Yes, I guess um, both businesses have been affected by everything that's going on. Um, I think with my commercial finance business, because it's pretty much um, myself and cases that I work on day to day, I have to really keep myself motivated and just get through this sort of period at the moment. Um, Whereas with the Marbank Inn, I have a team to look after and try and help everybody get through there. So mm. it's all, all a combination, really, with both businesses. And how has it been actually leading a team from the hospitality side of things over the last few months? Because I can imagine that even though, of course, they've rallied around you and really been there, I suppose as a leader, you also have to take responsibility for keeping their mental um, health and well-being in check and also providing some vital reassurance during this time. Because I can imagine with everything going on, there were maybe one or two anxious faces, particularly early on. Definitely. And I think we've got a great management team at, at the, uh, in the business. So everybody's sort of been chipping in. But for myself, it's really, I've really had to get all my skills together, everything that I've learned over the years in my career and really put them into practice, especially with making sure that everybody's okay, keeping them informed with, you know, all the type of updates. It is a real anxious time for everybody, but it's kind of, I think it just makes you become so strong that you have, you know, that you've got to, it's not just yourself that has to get through this. You've got to, you're responsible for a team of people. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it's um, it's kind of just adapting. We've had to adapt to a lot over the last few months. And I think that's sort of, it, 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 in a way, when it, when it does come to leadership, it sort of, some, it can be really natural where you know you've got, to, you've got to come up with a solution and it's got to be reactive and fast. Mm. And, you know, it's really. I think it's also important to remember that 
even though we are all leaders um, in a sense when we're running businesses, we're also human as well. And as humans, we're not going to be infallible. And there's an mm-hmm. awful amount of pressure when you're expected to have all of the answers within a crisis. And that's not necessarily the reality. So it's about in these situations being able to keep a cool head, isn't it? Sort of maintain calm and um, just try and take on certain issues slowly, break down the problem gradually, and then all work together to come to certain solutions. And despite the immense challenges that so many industries have been faced with, to their credit, business leaders and industry have been coping so, so well. And we've seen adaptation, we've seen innovation at an unprecedented scale over the last few months. So it shows an awful lot about the dedication and the entrepreneurial spirit that there is in this country, doesn't it, more than anything? Uh, for sure. I think a lot of the leaders have got together. Um, you know, I I often speak to many business owners. We're constantly sort of in, speaking to each other, trying to understand the different incentives that are in place to help businesses and uh, networking meetings, just so that we can get through, because we're pretty much all in the same position, really. Um, and then when things change, and it, it has been a brilliant support network, especially in our community where we are in, in Melbourne. Mm. We all help each other, businesses get together and everybody's sort of chipping in. We're so positive that we know it's gonna, we're, we're going to get through this. Um, but it's just knowing that we're, we are all vulnerable and like you said, we, we are human. So um, it's just helping each other get through it. That key word there that you mentioned, the N-word, networking, I think for mm-hmm. any young entrepreneurs especially that may well be tuning into today's program should really take heed of that because networking is something that is one of the best things you can do as an aspiring young business leader, isn't it? Because what we have discovered certainly during this uh, pandemic and it's really sort of slaps us in the face in a sense is that leadership is fundamentally all about learning and a lot about starting out in business essentially is trial and error now so many business leaders who've been on this program of late have talked about the pandemic as being like their first days back in business going back down to basics finding new income streams and leadership is really really shown in that scenario to be just a process of learning and trying new things and embracing learning curves and one of the best ways that you can learn as well as experience is also to seek out others look for mentors look at resources that are out there and take um, a lot of information from those so when it comes to mentors certainly that's one of the best things that you can do certainly looking to start your own business I think isn't it for sure. And I think over the years, I mean, with my banking career and my finance career, I've had some great um, previous employers that I've had, I've had to reach out to and they've been great with health. Mm. Again, with family as well. Many of them are business owners in my family and they've been a pillar of support too. So I've got, I'm very lucky where I feel as if I've got so many people I can reach out to to help me. So then with that knowledge, then I can obviously help my team and, you know, help them with anything that they need it's just sort of passing you know knowledge on and helping each other as we said before Mm. it's really important when all this is going on around us and we we just have to not it's not just you know just to keep the knowledge to yourself you've got to be able to help everybody you know that you can and we're all we're all all looking for answers um so it's just a way of just communicating, like we said, networking, going to events, and, mm. um, even if it is, you know, virtual and on um, Skype, etc., or Zoom meetings, 
it's just been really it just keeps us all going doesn't it it does and i think we've seen mm-hmm. collaboration especially at an unprecedented scale during this time we've seen so many business leaders often competitors talking to each other and sharing ideas and that is sort of laid bare no more so than by what we're seeing from the big pharmaceutical companies of course they're all vying um, in the quest for a vaccine to try and get there first and yet they're all sharing intellectual property they're all trying to remove different layers of bureaucracy to make sure that one can be produced quicker for the good of um, humankind during this time so we're mm-hmm. seeing collaboration, as I say, at a, at a, a scale we've never seen before. And that sort of spirit is something that we can certainly harness and take forward as a real positive from this period. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking about the positive side of this pandemic and moving away from sort of the dark and dense cloud that's hung over all of us, the doom and gloom, as it were. Can you actually mm-hmm. look back at the last few months and say that there's maybe something positive that you have learned from this experience of crisis management, if we call it that? A hundred percent. I mean, what we've had to do and, you know, it's like when we look back, it's like, why didn't we do this earlier? A lot of cost-cutting exercises, um, looking at waste, um, time waste, everybody's been more productive. And these things sort of before, we didn't really sort of home into them, but because we've had to, obviously with a pub uh, business that we have, we've had reduced hours, our sales have gone down 25%. So we're always sort of, We've been finding ways to increase sales in the small time that we are open because we're sort of open in the evenings more rather than the daytime. And what I've found, what I've been really impressed with our younger team members, um, we've got like a couple of graduates who have been with us, they were with us in the summer and we've got a graduate manager at the moment. Their ideas and the way they've actually, you know, come across with things to help, it's been so impressive, whereas maybe in the past, we never really, we may have not noticed, you know, or asked for their help and ideas because you may think, oh, they may not have the knowledge to do it mm-hmm. just because they haven't had the experience. But actually, these the youngsters are the ones who are actually, you know, keeping us positive and coming up with new ideas of technology and different ways to do things. Um, and it's been really tough for them, actually, because of universities. They weren't sure if they're going to university or their grades and they have really kept the spirit up of just, you know, getting through um, as well. So we've, we've, we've actually had so many positive things over the last few months, which, you know, we, we, we've needed that to just get us through. Mm. And if you could say, maybe go back 10 or so years to when you first started in business or even beyond then, is there anything yeah. armed with the experience that you have now that you feel you do differently going through your career or would you just embrace the learning curves that you've experienced as and when they've come? Um, I think we've, I mean, when you're at university, when, when, I, when I did my master's Oxford Brooks, it was in, in business management and all the kind of mm. courses and the modules that we did, I, I never thought, are we actually going to be using these in, in the future? But one of my our major ones was innovation and, you know, sort of adapting to, to situations and coming up with solutions. I've really had to use that over the last, you know, few months and weeks and trying to make, think of new income revenue streams for the businesses. So I guess it's, um, it's just been good to know that the skills that I've actually learned over the, the years in all the different types of businesses that I've worked in and, I've had to put them into practice in a short time and it's really been helpful to do that. 
Mm. I certainly understand where you're coming from from uh, that point of view and I think those skill sets are certainly something that are going to be needed in the future as well because we're Mm -hmm. certainly not out of the woods with this uh, COVID-19 situation yet there's a quite tricky winter ahead we know that before we can even think about the long-term future but if Mm -hmm. we could um, just for a moment um, sort of pretend that we have a crystal ball and can look a little bit further ahead Sonny um, Mm -hmm. in an ideal world where is it that you really want your businesses, Race Capital Group and the Mall Banking, to be this time in 12 months? And what is it that you're really hoping to have actually achieved by that point in time? Um, well, looking at the finance business, I'm just, because a lot of the, the funders, they actually pause their products and stop lending, um, which put my, a lot of my clients in a very awkward position. So I'm hoping that we'd get more lenders getting back into the marketplace, being more comfortable that they, you know, that they can get through. So everything can sort of return, hopefully, in a more comfortable position. Um, and then with the, the the hospitality business, it's really just that we can just try and come to some kind of normal. You know, it, it's. I'm hoping that with, with there are vaccines in place, so that people can actually go and enjoy themselves without being terrified of going into a pub or having a drink and socialising. So I'm hoping that, you know, that's where we will be in 12 months, but we just have to just pray that, that I guess it's going to, that, that's what's going to happen. You know, we can get through this. Mm. We do have to be positive and we do have to weather the storm. And um, it's an uncertain time, especially for the hospitality industry, because just given the long term impact that this is going to have on people's anxieties and on consumer confidence, there's no guarantee that the vaccine will be a magic bullet and it's going to make people feel inclined to return to public places. So it's going to be Mm -hmm. a long pathway back, but it's one that we can sort of look to and take the challenge in our stride. I certainly feel that way. And actually, just thinking about the amount of variables that there still are in all of this, Sonny, and how uncertain the situation remains i do think it would be really really intellectually useful to catch up in future and have you back on the program with us as we start to see things take shape and just see what has changed and also assess what's been going on behind the scenes at your businesses too Mm -hmm. definitely that'd be great and yes i'd love to take part in that I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. It's a shame we don't have more time on the programme today because I'm certain we could discuss these issues long into the evening. It's um, a hugely important topic. And um, most importantly, Sonny, until we do hopefully have an opportunity to converse again on the air, please do take care and stay safe with all that is still going on because we're not out of the woods with this yet. There are still dangers out there. But let's just keep our fingers crossed that we'll be out of this rut for, uh, for, um, for a quick time soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you ever so much. And I would also like to extend my best wishes to all of the listeners that are tuning into the programme today as well. It's important that you stay well, look after yourselves and also be considerate of other people because all of these things make it so, so, so much more easy to save lives in such a challenging time as this. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Sonny Panwar, Managing Director at Raise Capital Group and the Mall Bank in onto today's show. Um, next up on the programme today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord David Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held numerous senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during the latter's premiership and served as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His political exploits saw him elevated to Parliament's Upper House in August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew welcomed the opportunity to converse with him. 
All of that will, of course, be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who 
may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And of course, um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, Well, the the UK and and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required 
those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. 
I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world 
except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 
through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters 
but I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister, and all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, 
but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.